Well, greetings everyone. Today we will approach the book of Malachi. We just finished Zechariah, which tells the story of the building of the latter temple and its leadership, the present condition of the church, and what we need to do to rectify that condition. It touches on the tribulation and closes with the return of Christ. End of story. Well, almost. Malachi is a summary book to cap the minor prophets. It reviews the problems that we've seen in the other books and then gives insights into what must yet be done. It is addressed mainly, primarily, to the ministry. It affects each and every one of us as members of God's church, but the whole flow of the book of Malachi is to the ministry. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi We have been taking the approach in this series that it's talking, first of all, to spiritual Israel, the church. So here is a heavy message to the whole church, all Israel. In verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Eternal, yet you say, wherein have you loved us? How have you loved us? Where is your love shown, in other words? He says he loves us. But to many today, we look at the conditions in the church and wonder, where is God's love? Because we are in a spiritual famine, we are in a scattering, we are in a chastening, we are being spewed out of God's mouth for Laodiceanism, and we fail to see sometimes the real love of God, His real devotion to us, in the way that we would like to. It's hard to see someone's love when they are chasing you, chastening you and pounding on your behind, so to speak. Now God goes on to say, And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. He chooses who he loves, and reminds us that his love goes way back, where he chose Jacob over Esau, and that Jacob would be, I mean that Esau ultimately would be laid waste. Whereas Edom said, and Edom is Esau, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts. Or, end of that thought, and then another thought, thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, or the place where wickedness begins, is the attitude of of Esau and Edom. The satanic attitude, the bitterness, the hate. And that's where evil does begin. And the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. Remember what we saw in the book of Obadiah about God's attitude toward um, Edom. Now Edom thinks he will do a great work. On the international scene, Uh, They will take advantage of Israel when Israel begins to fall and be right on the scene, as Genesis 27, 39 through 40 clearly shows us. We went through that in Obadiah, that they would be there to uh, cut Israel off at the pass, to try to destroy Jacob. That has been in their hearts ever since the original Esau and Jacob walked this earth. And the book of Obadiah goes through that. So they are the beginning of wickedness. Now, on the international scene, they're going to be there to try to destroy physical Israel. But we saw also that worldwide Church of God was apparently taken over by Edomites who thought they would build up that church. They would restore the truth. Actually, Protestantism. 
and the church thereafter came apart and is fast disappearing from the world scene. But they thought that they would do a great work there. God has thrown them down. So it works on both the level of physical Israel and the level of spiritual Israel, the church. Verse 5. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Now contrast what God says to about Esau in verse 3, that he will lay his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, and they will be called the beginning of wickedness. Whereas God is going to be magnified in Israel and people will begin to turn to him again and then God will bless. So while Esau or Edom is the beginning of wickedness, Israel will be the start of righteousness and blessing from God. So there's a contrast between the two. God's people, spiritual Israel, ultimately will respond to God, and so will physical Israel in the millennium once Christ is here, and they will be leaders in the world tomorrow. Now, 1.6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? We are supposed to be living in fear, awe, respect, reverence to God and we are to honor him in everything we say and do so he says where are these things says the Lord of hosts to you O priests that despise my name now the ministry today might say well we don't despise his name well that's what he says here and he says and you say wherein how have we despised your name in other words the ministers today in the church of God would say, we love you. Uh, how do we despise you? How do we despise your name? We honor you. We love you. Uh, let's go back for a moment to Hosea. We've already covered this, but it ties in very well here, this being a summary book, and he goes right back to the first book of the Minor Prophets. Hosea 4, verse 5. Therefore you shall fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. The worldwide Church of God has essentially now been destroyed. This is history now, not prophecy. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you, that you shall be no priest to me. Seeing you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Now we have the law of God, but are we keeping it? Are we bringing every thought into the captivity of God? Is the ministry's focus righteousness and holiness and obedience to every law of God, or does it sometimes get on other things? It's because you've forgotten the law, you've given it lip service, I will also forget your children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. So as we got bigger and bigger, we had less and less devotion to God and more and more devotion to other things. And that is a Laodicean attitude that God said he would spew us out for. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. Look at the church today. It's a shameful place. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. So are our hearts on God? Do we just give him lip service? Is our heart and our mind on entertainment? Is it on sports? Is it on this or on that? As apart from having it devoted to God. And there shall be, like people, like priests, no difference between them, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. 
you reap what you sow. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the eternal. Here he lays it out for us, what our problem is. Revelation 3 is another one. Talking about Laodicean, those who are spiritually proud and think that they're doing fine. They would, that kind of attitude would ask the question, how have we despised you? We're doing good. We're serving you. We're serving your people. We're doing your work, the ministry will say today. But blind to its own sins. Now back to Malachi. Verse 8, And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Romans 12.1 tells us that we are a living sacrifice. That we are to be a holy, righteous, proper sacrifice before God. Do we offer this sacrifice of ourselves before God? Spiritually lame? Spiritually sick? Do we offer that, that is, ourselves, which are not what we should be? We're not like Christ in everything we think and act and say and do. Is that not evil? Are we a pure sacrifice to God? Another area that we might despise God is we despise and ignore the prophecies God put on the table, preaching peace, peace. And that if you're in my group, whatever group that might be, uh, your salvation is basically assured and you'll go to a place of safety because we're the Philadelphians and the rest of them out there are Laodiceans. So we try to lift ourselves up in pride saying we're the ones, we're the best, we're the right leaders, those others are wrong out there, and that makes us, if we do this, Laodicean. Spiritually proud saying we have everything we need, it's the others that are the problem. Are we really changing our lives as ministers? Are the people really growing, spiritually speaking? Or is the ministry effete, weak, toothless, and spiritually inept? But not seeing it in ourselves. That's what self-righteousness is here. God says, you have these problems, but you don't see them. You're blind to your own problems. We're going to see as we go through this, this is applying specifically to the ministry today. Malachi is an end-time book written as a summary of the minor prophets, which are written just under the shadow of the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus Christ, Zechariah showing his return, and then Malachi comes back and gets all over the ministry because of the situation and the circumstances in the church. The change has to begin with the leaders. Let's go back to Jeremiah 23 just for a moment. We haven't gone over this in a while. Jeremiah 23. Woe be to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastures, says the Eternal. God says he is doing the scattering and lamentations and many, many other scriptures. But he uses Satan to do some of that scattering, and he uses the ministry because of their ineptness and lack of spiritual uh, strength. To do that, it is the actions of the pastors that cause the people to scatter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, says the Eternal. 
The ministry is too busy to take care of the people. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries. We'll focus on that a little later on. Where I have driven them and will bring them again to their foes. So he lays the blame on the ministry, but he says he has driven them out. And I will set up shepherds over them to feed them. Now God is going to send righteous, proper leadership. But in the meantime, he holds it against the ministry. Uh, verse 20. In the latter days, last part of the verse, you shall consider it perfectly, or you will understand it. He says, I've not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Oh, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. But they cause God to, or cause the people not to follow God's ways. And they do not speak his words faithfully. God tells us all through the prophecies we are to be repenting and turning to him with our whole hearts. But the ministry is saying, for the most part, well, you're okay. If you're with us, we're doing what's right and we'll be okay. They're not telling the people that they are not turning to God with their whole hearts. The ministry needs to focus on Jeremiah 23. It's talking to us. It's not talking to someone else. It's not talking to Methodists and Baptists. It's talking to spiritual Israel in the ministry of the Church of God today. Ezekiel 34, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the modern-day ministry of the Church of God. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. This is God speaking. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, Christ told Peter. You eat the fat and you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. What is the emphasis through all these prophecies? Is it doing a work to the world? No, it's feeding the flock of God. Something that the ministry overall has forgotten. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. Beat them over the head for more money. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd, no overall leader. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. We've got to go get new people. We've got to have them... Uh, a message going out there to this world to get more sheep in here in the, in the flocks. So we walk over the wounded and sick and dying and caught in the brush going out to get more sheep instead of taking care of what God has given us and God is not happy with us. The shepherds feed themselves and feed not my flock into verse 8. Into verse 10. I will deliver my flock from their mouth. They'll be, the ministry will be taken away. The flock will be taken away from the ministry. God says he will, in verse 16, destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. Verse 18, seems it a small thing to you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat that which you have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I even I will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle, because you've thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed out all the disease with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. That is what God thinks of today's ministry across the board. Maybe there are a few here and there who are not treating people this way, 
But that's the way the organizations are treating the flock of God, and God is not happy. He uses the whole summary book of Malachi, the end of this story, to get on us as ministers. No one would say we hold God in contempt as a minister, but our lies, our lives belie our lip service. We are to turn with our whole heart, not feignedly, as Jeremiah 3 points out. Let's go on in verse 8 of Malachi 1. You've offered the lame and the sick. Is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the Lord of hosts? If we went to a physical ruler, would we give solicitous, rapt attention to him? What if Zerubbabel, our governor, as pointed out in Haggai 1.1, who will be uh, over Zerubbabel over the remnant latter temple that God is going to put together. What if we went before him? Do we polish the wrong boots, fellow ministers? Do we play the politics of men? Do we offer ourselves spiritually lame and sick to God's people? Do we give ho-hum, half-hearted, half-believing prayers to God? And do the people give the same kind? When we anoint people, do we expect the people to be healed? Or do we hedge by sending them to the doctors? How much sin do we accept in ourselves or in the sheep of God? Contrast us with the Christ, the perfect Lamb. Now, do we have problems or do we not? How have we despised the name of God? It's by the way we live. It's by the way we treat His sheep. Verse 9, And now I pray you, beseech God that He will be gracious to us. This has been by your means. Will he regard your person, says the Lord of hosts? What does God think? Will he have mercy? Malachi tells us to pray for God's mercy because what we have done to the sheep has angered God incredibly and he is destroying the flocks today and it has only just begun. Verse 10 Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. God is so upset with the ministry today that there is no pleasure he takes in us and he will not accept our offerings, our prayers, whatever we send before him. One of the prime motivators of today's ministry is what? money. Won't do anything for nothing. Many wouldn't leave the paganism of Worldwide Church of God when the Edomites came came in until they had a new check in hand. The hireling mentality is what God is talking about here. I know of one man who negotiated an eight-year contract with an organization before he would make the change. He told me personally that he only taught this paganism and false doctrine once so he could protect his job. Then he would go on and preach the things that he thought were okay, but he would preach it once. How many times would Christ preach paganism in order to keep his check? How many stayed in worldwide and sort of went along with those things? Maybe not openly preaching them, but tacitly agreeing by not preaching against them. 
because they were afraid of their paychecks. Stayed there for years knowing that what was going on was wrong. But had to have that paycheck. Why does God call us hirelings? Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even of the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. A pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, says the Lord of hosts. So he's saying here that we have profaned God's table. That we, the called and trained ministers of God, do not respond the way he wants us to. That we will not actually live by faith. But ultimately, the unwashed Gentiles will do this before this whole thing is over. Verse 12, But you have profaned it, in that you say, The table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, of even his meat, is contemptible. We have profaned God's table with our attitudes and our approaches by mistreating and mishandling and abusing his sheep. Many who left worldwide ultimately participated in the pollution before switching allegiances. The ministry and the people look at the church mess and they condemn, in many cases, Herbert Armstrong. Bashing, Armstrong bashing is in style in, church, in the church today by many. Many say, what gave, God gave us through that man is polluted. Now, Herbert Armstrong didn't have all the truth, and he did not live perfectly, but God used him to give us the correct basic foundation and still he is trashed by many. So what we're ultimately saying is it's not you, Samuel, it's God who's the problem. We trash Herbert Armstrong and we're trashing the God who sent him, just as they were trashing Samuel whom God sent. So we've profaned it. Verse 13, You said also, Behold, what a weariness is it! And you have snuffed at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, says the Eternal? We say it's such a burden, such a problem to cleanse ourselves. God way is, God's way is so prohibitive. We like the world's ways and its entertainments. Holiness is too much for us to attain, so we let it slide. We don't really overcome. God says to all the churches, to him who overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Is God pleased with our halfway, lackluster, lackadaisical approach to him, with our half-hearted prayers, with our half-hearted efforts? Verse 14. But cursed be the deceiver, which has in his flock a male and vows and sacrifices to the eternally corrupt thing. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is dreadful among the heathen. The heathen are going to learn to fear him and crawl under the rocks. What are we going to do? What if we had to face God, not just a bunch of ministers who are perhaps over us? God expects more of us as a ministry than we are giving or producing, both in our personal lives and in the lives of our flocks. He really expects more, and we are failing. He says he will take the flocks away. This is a very, very serious indictment here, the closing statement of the whole minor prophets that God had written for us. And if you don't think it's talking about the ministry, it, it's talked about old priests here in verse 6, and it's talked about the polluted bread and so on. 
But notice chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O you priests, this commandment is for you. This is written directly to the ministry. And if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. So he can read our minds. He already knows that we are not going to respond as a ministry overall as we should. A few may, but most will not. They'll go on in spiritual pride and self-righteousness, lifting themselves above the people, thinking they're something special, in the apple of God's eye, and ignoring these scriptures that God has written specifically to the ministry. It's not talking about the Methodists and Baptists. The Bible wasn't written to them. Mr. Armstrong told us over and over the Bible was written for the church, to spiritual Israel. So he makes it very clear, O priests, ministry of the church today, this commandment is for you. I include myself, us. Now, what is God going to do? He says, I've already cursed what you're doing. Most are out there trying to do a work, trying to preach the gospel. Herbert Armstrong said that job was finished. Get the church ready. But we despised what God man, what God said through that man. We didn't believe him when he said that phase of the, earth, the work right now is finished. That God has called all he's going to call, basically. And now he is choosing, and he is sorting, and he is separating. He may call a few in the eleventh hour, yes. But all those millions that are being spent by some of the organizations today to try to do the work, as they term it, and call more people is falling flat. God has already cursed it. Now, what is he going to do in addition to what is already we already see happening? Verse, verse 3, Behold, I will corrupt your seed. He will curse our seed. We plant. We try to do a work. And God does not let us bring it to harvest or a very poor harvest for the effort expended and the dollars spent. That's what the churches are experiencing today. They had all the advantages of the knowledge that was given, the booklets that were printed ahead. They're even reprinting some of those and writing some along the same lines. A trained ministry. Everything set to go. A flock ready to fleece, to, to get the money from, to do the work. But basically, nothing is happening. God has already shown but he is cursing our seed. We keep planting, but nothing comes up. Not much happens. So he will corrupt the seed in the first place and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts. Now, the calendar becomes front and center here to the end time ministry, and most of the ministry is utterly ignoring God's calendar, which he has written in the heavens, and which he tells us, what to do with in the Bible. Now, when they had the solemn feasts of God in the past, they did animal sacrifices, and that's the reference point that Malachi is using. And when those animals came, ready to be sacrificed, they were driven out of corrals, perhaps along a dusty road, who knows. But any of you who've driven cattle know that when you move them, they begin to spread dung on the earth. And if they get hot... It's very liquid dung. Cow manure. Now God says he's going to pick that cow manure up and spread it on the faces of the ministry. 
even the dung of your solemn feasts. Now it is important to understand that when he says your feasts here, the word is in the Hebrew, Strong's number 2282, Chag, your feasts. Let me compare here, Amos 5. Amos 5. And, let's see, I want verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days. And again, he uses the word chog. And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. I can't stand the stench of what you're doing because you're not doing it the way I want and you're not doing it when I want. So it is our feasts, our set and appointed times. He doesn't use the word moed, which he uses in Leviticus 23 and other places where he's talking about his appointed times, his set feasts. Well, the ministry today, the church today, is not keeping Christmas and Easter. Well, worldwide is now. But those who have remained essentially faithful, at least in word and name, are not keeping those things. They're still keeping Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, and so on but they're not keeping them when God says. And they hold them in places like Branson, Missouri, where people can be entertained by this world rather than and distracted rather than worshiping God with their whole heart, despising God's feasts, both in manner of keeping and in the times they are kept. He has set appointed feast days. And he says you shall keep the new month beginning with the new moon. But the Jews decide they'll put it off a day or two if they don't like the day that it falls on. Catholics only move the Sabbath one day, just from Saturday to Sunday. No big deal, huh? Well, God's holy days are the same way. Can you move them one or two days? When God says, I will be there on the seventh month first day, and you say, well, I think it'd be better if it didn't fall on the day that it came on this year, so let's move it a day or two. Can that make God happy when he's there to feast with us and we move it a day or two? In other words, the calendar issue is front and center right now in the church of God and the ministry overall is keeping the traditions of men and not following the reality of the heavens but allowing the Jews to move away from the reality of the heavens by one to two days most of the time. God is going to spread cow dung on our faces if we continue that. Reading on. And one shall take you away with it. A very awkward phrase in the King James, but it means, I'll haul you off like dung. That's what he says he will do to the ministry. He will smear that cow manure on our faces and haul us away like dung. That is God's assessment of what is going on in the church today in relationship to God's feast days and or our feast days. Verse 4, And you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant might be with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Now he's writing this from the Old Testament perspective. We know in Hebrews 7, verses 12 through 14, that there has been a change in the ministry or a change in the priesthood, it says, and that the New Testament ministry is now the one that God has given the authority to. He took it away from the Jews at the end of Matthew 23 and in John 10 and said, I'll see you in the great white throne judgment. And then he gave the power and the authority to the New Testament ministry. 
Paul reiterates that in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, where he says, Let no man judge you in terms of what you eat or drink or new moons or feast days. He separates it there to both calendar, that is, new moons, and the feast days themselves and how they are kept. So he addresses both timing and uh, practice in Colossians 2 through 16, 16 through 17. And he says, Let no man judge you on these matters but the church of God. God gave the authority to the New Testament ministry and took it away from the Jews on all those issues, what we eat, what we drink, when we keep God's feasts, and how we keep them. So the ministry today is the covenant that God has set. Christ being the chief apostle, who has set all the doctrine in the church via the Bible, and the ministry under Christ as it was introduced through Peter, James, John, and Paul, and so on, and has come on down to us today. So, we are the ones who are supposed to be keeping the ministerial or Levitical or priesthood with God today. Not the Jews. We don't look to the Jews for anything, basically, other than calendar. And we know they have it fouled up on Pentecost. We know they keep the 15th Passover. But we go ahead and accept their postponements uh, not following the reality of the calendar which God put in the heavens. So this is written to the New Testament ministry, a prophecy for the end time today. Verses 5 through 6, My covenant was with Levi of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. So he says the Aaron and his people, the priesthood, feared God. Aaron didn't at times, but boy did God straighten him out. And God gave a great deal of instruction to the Levites back there and to Aaron. And the ministry today needs to go back and review that covenant of life and peace. Where are the Phineas is today? Where is one who sees sin in Israel and goes in and stabs the man and the woman to death because they fear God? And they'll take care of that. Where are the Nehemiahs who will jerk people's hair out and pound knots on their head, as he said? Smite them. Maybe we don't need to do it in a physical way, but we need to be doing it in a spiritual way. We need to review those things as ministers and how we are to treat God's people and the reverence and respect we are to give to God, not just lip service. Now, is it, are these charges right or wrong that God makes to us? Well, they're right, because God is righteous. And we had better take it to heart, or we are going to have the manure spread in our faces, and we'll be hauled off like manure from in front of the kitchen table. What we are doing today with God's people requires the same attention that God required of the Levitical priesthood, and there were many warnings to them of how to proceed. Verse 6, The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. Paul talks about converting and changing people's lives. What we are doing needs to be changing people's lives. They don't need to be coming there, sitting, half-sleeping through our services, and not doing anything about it. Wiping their mouth and going away, saying, Well, we must be all right. The minister says, Peace, peace, and everything must be okay. The, t the tendency today from the ministry is to smooth things over, to try to be popular with the people, so they'll keep giving and giving, and the people are frustrated by all this. 
Verse 7, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The ministry, compositely, is a direct representative or representation of God. Do people see God in us as ministers or servants of God in the people? Do they see fat cats, perhaps overpaid, ballooning expense reports, spending money on this, that, and the other thing, and preaching the gospel, which is having basically no effect? Or do they see a ministry who's digging in the Bible to find out what God says about what is going on today in the church, rather than assuming that what they're doing is okay and has God's blessing? Well, if it has God's blessing, why are we being spewed out all over the earth? And why is it going to continue instead of getting better? We are now in a time of spiritual famine where people wander from city to city to find the truth, as per Amos 3. But God says right ahead of us in Amos 8.11, there will be a total famine, and they'll go from sea coast to sea coast and not find it. Because that is what is going to happen to the church. This is not at all over yet. Verse 8, But you are departed out of the way. Herbert Armstrong said the church is off the track, off the path. And God is saying that right here. That the ministry right now, today, under the conditions that we're talking about just before the day of the Lord, the end time church, the ministry is out of the way, off the path. We've caused many to stumble at the law. We've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. We don't give the same reverence and respect and attention to the detail of what God wants the church to be doing. We preach some generalities, perhaps, but we are not giving the people what they need to cause them to really grow. Instead, we tromp them down and say, send more money. Pay, pray, stay, and pay. Because we're doing the work. No, we're not doing the work as a ministry. And God tells us that here. But you already parted out of the way. You've corrupted the covenant of Israel of, of Levi. We need to review all this, these scriptures and see if we measure up to God's standard to take stock of ourselves as individuals. Verse, two, verse 9. Therefore, because of this, God says, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Respecters of persons. James 2 covers this. Not administering judiciously and fairly. We have second tithe, third tithe, to take care of the widow, the orphan, those who are needy and poor. But most of that money, and maybe this is a trade secret being given out, traditionally, over the years, the decades, in the Worldwide Church of God and in some organizations today, most of that money goes to the ministry. A very small percentage of it goes to the people. And we are contemptible and base before all the people. The ministry is not respected today. We demand respect, perhaps, but we don't have it because our ways are not respectable. And God tells us that. Now, is this right on or is it not? Come on. As ministers, we have to realize, I think, that a lot of people despise us God has made us 
this way before the people. And it's a sad testimony to a ministry that was trained to go out and be servants of God that the people have been mistreated and abused as per Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and now Malachi. Verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers, by not being faithful, by whoring after other interests, by pursuing sidelines, by having our attention on TV or uh, other forms of entertainment or whatever it is we like to do, instead of being out there really working, taking care of God's people. Verse 11, Judah hath dealt treacherously. We've talked before about how Judah probably represents those who broke off from worldwide uh, being spiritually Judah today has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel go back and read Jeremiah 3 about treacherous sister Judah and how she also is whored not just worldwide overall the church Israel uh, departing but Judah also and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord Judah or Israel and Jerusalem are the church. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. I preach that like a broken record, but that's where it shows that these Old Testament types are speaking of the church today. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord. The holiness. We are called to be holy, absolutely righteous and pure and virginal before God on a spiritual level. But we've profaned that and have married the daughter of a strange God. We've whored after this world. The Lord will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offers an offering unto the Lord of hosts. It sounds like Zechariah 11, doesn't it? We just went over that, where it talks about three major trees being cut down, three ministers being cut off. And Isaiah 5, about all the different flocks and temple and houses that are going to be torn down. The churches are coming down, brethren, and God holds the ministry front and center most responsible for it. Now, all of us as individuals are culpable, whether we're ministers or whether we're laymen, but God holds the ministers most culpable because we are set as teachers. And were we not told, be not many masters, because we will receive a greater condemnation. And the condemnation God is putting on the church today comes first and foremost to the ministry. Verse 13, And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering any more, or receives it with good will at your hand. Tears without performance mean nothing to God. They're actually an offense to Him. So He's telling the present modern ministry of all the churches, I will not hear your prayers. You can weep and cry and pray all you want, but until you repent, I will not pay any attention to you. I will curse your seed, and I will spread the dung of your feasts on your faces. Now, this is a prophecy for us for now. Yet you say, now this is, see, God tells us what he thinks in verse 13. Yet you say, wherefore? Why? How? And then God answers, because. 
the Eternal has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet is she your companion and the wife of your covenant. I think this is probably a reference to our relationship with the church. We're not faithful to all we vowed that we would be faithful in at baptism. We made a lot of promises before we were baptized about what we would do and how we would live and how we would act. And when we were trained in the ministry at Ambassador College, we said, yes, yes, that's what we'll do. We'll go out there and be servants of the people, helpers of their joy. But overall, we have fouled things. Now, if this is a reference to our marriage to the ministry, our marriage to God's church, and ultimately our marriage to Christ as his bride, notice verse 15. And did not he make one? Did God not give us a leader? If this is talking about the relationship between us and the church and ultimately the bride of Christ, he gave Herbert Armstrong to us. And it says, Yet had he the residue, and the margin says, the excellency of the Spirit. He had an excellent spirit and attitude and desire to see God's people treated right. He sought to prepare us to be the seed of God, the holy, chaste, virginal bride of Christ. But look at us. We're being scattered. We're being spewed for Laodiceanism. And it's not over by any means. We must be faithful, not seeking other pursuits. I had to turn the tape over. We need to read the book to find out what God wants done, not go on blithely thinking that we have to finish Herbert Armstrong's work for him when he himself said, that phase is done, get the church ready. That should be job one today. But most of the ministry ignores that. We're not being faithful to the one God sent who had an excellent spirit. And we're not being faithful to God and his word because he says in here that we need to be taking care of his people. Does he condemn the ministry in any of these scriptures in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1 and other scriptures for not preaching the gospel to the world? Absolutely not. You don't find it anywhere in these prophecies. But over and over and over again, he talks to the ministry about how they are mistreating and abusing God's people instead of helping them put on the garments of righteousness as per Isaiah 52, 1 through 2. And he says then, the end of verse 15, that he might seek a godly seed, or, as the margin says, the seed of God. God planted through Herbert Armstrong a seed for God. And that seed is being scattered now because we did not develop, we did not grow into spiritual maturity. We became Laodicean, lackadaisical, lackluster, half-hearted, and God hates that. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates putting away. God doesn't want this to come to divorce between he, the church, and us. He wants us to be faithful, to become mature, spiritual Christians with our, with our attention on God. Now there is also an alternate translation to this, which my King James says, uh, it says, For the Lord God of Israel says, If he hate her, put her away. Now the custom, the customary way of doing things under the guidelines of Matthew tw or Exodus 24, excuse me, were that you could marry, uh, you could have multiple wives during that administration, 
But if you divorced, you were supposed to take care of that person, that wife that you put away. But what the people had begun to do was that they would keep the wife on, refusing to divorce. Given the opportunity in Exodus 24, they wouldn't divorce her. They would not give her what she needed. They would keep her from marrying someone else. They wouldn't put her away. And God said, under those circumstances, if you won't love her, if you won't take care of her, if you won't help her, put her away. In other words, some hang on the church, onto the church the same way today. They carp, they criticize, they gripe, they put down, but they keep hanging on. If this alternate translation is correct, it is saying, get in or get out. If you're not going to do this thing wholeheartedly and keep your vows of the marriage that we made with God at baptism to divorce, go your way. Leave her in peace rather than hanging on and griping and carping. It won't do you any good anyway. God will ultimately reject this attitude. And this is still speaking specifically to the ministry. In other words, God is saying, resign. Go make a living doing something else if you will not take proper care of God's flock, Christ's bride. Get away from her. Divorce yourself from her so she can pursue her marriage with Christ without you being in the way. For one covers violence with his garment. We see all these problems in the church. We have all this sin in the church. And we spread our skirt over the evil to try and hide the real attitudes. But God sees through all this. God says, don't cover it with your skirts, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, he uses over and over here. Because he is going to take charge. He's not going to sit back much longer. He's going to act as a Lord of hosts not a sweet Jesus. And we're going to find out. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously, saying you're being faithful when you're not really faithful, not living up to the vows that we made. And the Levitical priesthood was instructed in, the New Testament ministry was instructed in. God says we're not living up to those instructions, fellow ministers, and we had better or we are in trouble and not deal treacherously against the wife of our youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says that, well, let's see, we've already done, we've gone over that. Verse 17 is what I want. You have wearied the Lord with your words. We preach on and on, and we justify. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? We just don't get it. We don't see it. The ministry as a whole does not grasp that God is angry with it. Wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, we're all Philadelphians, the others are Laodiceans, and he delights in them. Alright, here's what God doesn't like. He doesn't like us saying, he that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That we're okay, that we're spiritually alright. And that he delights in them. That God is pleased with us, peace, peace, when there is no peace in the church. Or, thirdly, where is the God of judgment? In other words, God must not be unhappy. Time goes on. We're still out here doing the work, as we put it. God isn't happy with those attitudes. And he defines it for us right here. All right, let's look at chapter 3 now. See how I'm doing for time. I wanted to finish this. Oh, my. Well, let's go on a little bit here in chapter 3. Behold, 
I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. So out of all this mess that he's talking about in the ministry, God is going to send us some righteous, able leadership, and this is reviewed in Haggai, or laid out in Haggai, in Zechariah 1 through 6, basically. But he is going to send us a Zerubbabel, a Joshua, and a remnant of the people will be gathered to them. So God is going to send a messenger. Right now we are without an overall leader, such as we had under Herbert Armstrong. Our king is dead, our counselor has perished, as Micah 4, I think verse 9 says, as Isaiah 51 says, there is no son among all those children she has produced who can be her leader. And there are several other scriptures that say basically the same thing. But he is going to send us a leadership here at the end and who will prepare the way before Christ. John the Baptist was a type preparing the way before Christ uh, in, in his first coming and he's going to send us someone else to prepare the way here at the end. And he will suddenly come to his temple. This isn't talking about his second coming in glory to put down the rest of the world, I think, I don't believe. It's talking about uh, Zechariah 2. In fact, I'll go back there and review that briefly, but it talks here about how uh, once the church flees, and that's what he talks about here at, at the end of chapter 2, that Christ will come and he will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem, the church, in verse uh, 5 of chapter 2 and will be the glory in the midst of her. And he tells us to flee, because he will take care of us once we flee. You can go back to Isaiah uh, 4. Isaiah 4. We read this recently, but I'll go back here, and let's set the context of what he's saying. Verse chapter 4 of Isaiah. In that day seven women, all the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. What reproach? The churches are going to be divided, scattered, and the flocks taken away from the ministry, and the organizations are coming down. And there will be a reproach borne by that. But there will, the faithful people will come and take hold of the leader, the messenger that God is going to send us at the end. And that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So those that escape are going to be taken care of. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. And it's going to be a very small percentage, as we shall see. Even everyone that is written among the living, not the dead, but the living in Jerusalem, spiritually alive, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, all the churches, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. We're about to read about that in Malachi. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, the church, and upon her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert, covert from storm and from rain. And then he talks about tearing down the churches in the next chapter. So this is what he's talking about. He's going to send us a messenger at the end to prepare the way for Christ, and he will suddenly come to his temple. I think he will be there in a place of safety, whether he shows up uh, physically where we can see him as such, or whether he is only there as a covert from the rain and the storm and as a protection. But the force of the word seems to be that Christ is going to be there. And there's precedent in the New Testament for that. 
Um, he came down and taught Paul for three and a half years after he had ascended, and he was in the desert. Now, we, we can't say he's in the desert here and he's in the desert there. We're warned about that, but the world is saying that, and we'll say it more. <laughs> but he will come to his temple, and his church will be in a wilderness and in a desert and in the mountains, and he will come and protect her. And he will also send physical leadership to be with us. But who may abide the day of his coming? When he comes and begins to deal directly with the church in person, who can stand? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, the ministry, and purge them as gold and silver. You know what they do when they purge gold and silver? They put it through a great deal of heat that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So God is going to take the ministry by the scruff of the neck and throw them in the fire of tribulation, and they are going to be purified. They, we. If we don't purify ourselves now and treat God's people right and do what we should, God is going to take care of us. And he's going to take care of us in such a way that the heat will hurt so that we may offer righteousness and holiness before God. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. He won't despise it anymore. He will <coughs> love to see it because it will be done with the right attitude and approach. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swears and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless and the turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, says the Lord of hosts. So God is going to take care of us. The second tithe, the third tithe that goes to the ministry and it legally can to a, to a degree. But we have to take care of God's people first. And spiritually here, this isn't necessarily just monetary. I think we can see that. But we don't give the right spiritual food. We're not causing them to grow. Now, physical food causes us to grow and to flourish physically. Spiritual food should be causing us to grow and flourish spiritually. But we don't do that. God's people are not flourishing. They're beaten down. They're downtrodden. They are not growing in holiness and righteousness in the way that God wants. For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. If it weren't for God's absolute mercy, he says, I would consume you. Even from the days of your fathers you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He pleads for us to return to him. But we are so self-righteous, we do not even see our problem. Speaking of the ministry as a whole. What is God so upset about? We've been good. Oh boy, is he upset. Listen to this. But you say, God says return to me and I will return to you. But you say, how shall we return? In what way? What are you talking about? Well, what does he say? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say... You say, wherein have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Now, is that referring to the ministry? Yes, it is. Now, how? 
God gives one good example of how we have not turned to him. It's the money, stupid. Money as our frequent, most idolatrous God that we tend to worship. Layman and minister alike. Now we're speaking here on a spiritual plane. What did God give the ministry? He gave us the tithes of the people who have essentially been faithful in tithes and offerings. They've given and given and given and given some more. And they get beat over the head saying, give some more, give some more, we've got to go do the work. Now is God talking about the physical money here? God's people have basically been righteous and faithful in paying their tithes to the church, first, second, third, offerings and everything else. But this isn't written to the to the, the layman. This is written to the ministry. Now how have we not given his God his tithes? He gave us the money to do what? To produce holy, righteous seed of God. God already owns the silver and gold. He does not need money or much care about it for that matter in comparison. What he really wants is a holy, righteous ministry and people. But we have not produced a holy, righteous seed for God. The bride is far from ready. The people are not holy. And he is only going to gather a tithe of them from our flocks. Ninety percent are not usable. I don't have time to do it right now, but you can go to Amos 5.3, Ezekiel 5, Isaiah 1.9, and 6.13, and Haggai, where he talks about a small remnant, a tithe of the people in Isaiah 6.13, a small remnant or tithe in Isaiah 1.9. Ezekiel 5 details Ezekiel taking out a third to go into famine, a third into the sword, and a, a, a third into captivity, and then a sword coming after them. Only 10% saved. Then he takes some of the hair out of his apron and throws it on the gra- into the fire because it will be a small tithe, not even 10%. We have not brought 10% of God's people whom he called ready, righteous, and holy to become the bride of Christ. We have robbed God. He gave us all that money, millions and millions and millions of dollars to use to sustain ourselves so that we could produce a holy, righteous crop of people for God and we have failed! The ministry has used the money for high living, for fine salaries, for lease cars, for abundance, especially among the leaders. What happened to feed my lambs my sheep? We've fouled the waters of the people. God expected us to produce a holy, righteous flock. Much of the ministry today is out trying to find more flocks to fleece instead of taking care of the dead, the dying, and the wounded. Instead of leaving the 99 and going after the ones caught in the brush... We're busy out trying to find new ones, walking over the bodies and the tormented souls in God's church today who are confused, frustrated, and despise us overall. We're so busy out there trying to find new flock for God, we don't take care of what God's given us. Now, some of the flock have started withholding their physical ties because of seeing the misuse. And God holds the ministry responsible for engendering this attitude in them, and they also will suffer if they do this. But God holds the ministry most liable. We have robbed God because we have not brought him that holy, righteous people he desires. Verse 10. 
Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. If we would get busy preparing this people, this spiritual tithe, this tenth of his people, if we would bring that remnant to him, use the money right to produce a holy, righteous bride for Christ, do that and see if he will bless. It's written to the ministry, remember, not the people. The whole context here is the ministry. Quit beating the money out of the people and use it to prepare his righteous 10%. Give him his tithe of all those he called. Many are called, few are chosen. And we've not been doing our part to get them ready so that they can be chosen. That is job one for the ministry today. That is what God condemns us for over and over. Not because we didn't preach the gospel to the world properly. There is not one shred of censure against the ministry that I have found in the prophecy so far about that. But there is an awful lot about not taking proper care of his people. I'm not saying it's wrong to preach the gospel. But Herbert Armstrong preached that and had those people called, and we're not taking care of them right, and God is going to send the two witnesses to preach a warning against this world, not to convert them. In the meantime, we need to be taking care of what God has given us, or we will lose our salvation. Verse 11, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. If we will do what God is telling us to do here, God says he will begin to bless what we do again, and that he will call off the spiritual famine that we have today. 3.13 Your words have been stout against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? We are so self-righteous, so blind, we can't see. We tend to blame God on some level for the mess around us. He lays it squarely on us. We just cannot believe we are the problem. But God says we are. And we'd better look into our lives and find out what's wrong. Verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? We've worked so hard and been so sacrificing. We are doing the work. Why do you blame us? We'd better take stock. Verse 15, and now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yes, they that tempt God are even delivered. We give honor to ourselves. We raise ourselves above the people. We are spiritually proud and call ourselves men of God. But it is a sham. It isn't the truth. It isn't God's view of us. Now, verse 16. Then, after this, they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord, Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Not upon this world and its things, but thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. These are the promises that he gives us in Revelation 2 and 3 if we overcome. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. Then we shall see who is righteous and who is not. All those titles and self-elevation will come down. The spiritually proud will fall. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. True humility will show through in the end. It may be hard to tell for a while, but truth will out. And those of us who do repent, God will bless. So he gives us a great deal of rebuke and a lot of chastening here 
as a ministry. But he tells us that if we will repent and we will truly put him first in our lives, we will be blessed. For behold, the day comes. See the time element here again. All this prior to, to chapter 4 is talking about the church today, before the tribulation and during the tribulation. That's when he's going to purify us. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So God and Christ are going to bring this world's ways to an end, and the ways of a corrupt ministry and a corrupt people to an end. But unto you that fear my name shall a son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, or his rays, he uses the analogy of Christ here, shining like the sun. And there are several scriptures that uh, that talk about this. Back in Psalms and in Isaiah 60, Psalm 84:11 is one where he is called the son of righteousness or compared to the sun. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. So we'll be in the sunshine and the good graces of God. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet, in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember you the law of Moses, my servant. Remember all those instructions to the ministry back there and his laws and his ways, which are magnified in the New Testament. We have much instruction in the Old and the New Testament that we can follow the right principles of and be in the good graces of God. With all the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. We don't have time today to go into all that this is talking about, um, but I will, God willing, devote the next sermon to Elijah and what must be done. We speculated a lot about this, and we thought at times that it was Herbert Armstrong, and we thought this, and we speculated that, but I think the scriptures give us some insight as to what must be done. And it's a lot, lot bigger picture than that that we have looked at before. So we'll bring this to a close today, and God willing, I'll pick it up here, and we'll go into Elijah and what must be done before Christ returns, lest he come and smite the earth with a curse. So that's all for today.